Okay, today is uh, March 26, 2006. We're discussing Lesson 20 in Epistle to the Hebrews. And let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have uh, given us so many good things and that uh, you have uh, prepared such instructions for us, Lord. And we know that this epistle, written uh, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was a special gift to us. Father, we thank you that you've allowed us to study it. We thank you that you've uh, allowed us uh, to, uh, to know some of the uh, issues that this uh, writer has uh, given to us, Father, and for the insights that the Holy Spirit has uh, brought to us through the study of it. We ask that as we close this, that we might uh, have, uh, once again, an opportunity to meet uh, around your feet and learn from you. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bakabanu Mikoha Amin Benatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Bless Adonai who is blessed Blessed is Adonai who is blessed forever Blessed art thou, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed art thou, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, we uh, are finishing up here, and this is one of the uh, scriptures that we actually looked at um, as a possible exhortation or rebuke or warning. Actually, it's after one of the scriptures, so this was not included. Disregard that. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, that is, that his, his counsel cannot change, his advice, his, his instructions cannot change, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, that is, that his counsel can't change, an oath, and himself, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have been who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us this hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us even Yeshua having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek Hebrews 6 17 through 20 and I have chosen that as the key verse of all the book of Hebrews for myself because in it, it well first of all it's a very complex three verses or four verses there <laughs> uh, and which fits pretty good with Hebrews and also the idea of the how much more the immutability of this counsel that amazes me when we consider when we've looked at how many people treat this book uh, the replacement uh, the replacement uh, picture the replacement uh, uh, way that, that, that it, this book is used to replace something with something better in, the, in, the, in, in those people's minds and yet not then destroy the faith, as it were, of those same people who were trusting God to not change his mind, not change his counsel. If he can change his mind, if his word can be amended by a new covenant, as it were, by a new law, 
then how do we know that the one that we have is the last one? And that's, that's to me, as I look at it, and it's, and it's something that I honestly, honestly struggle, have struggled with for many years, the idea that how can I know that there's not going to be something new? Uh, and it, it, it's very clear to me that there isn't going to be something new, but how do I know that? And, and uh, what a worthless and, 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 and waste of time to even consider. That's right. Absolutely. Good. In other words, he's faithful, so you can remain faithful, which is the theme for tonight. Very good. Uh, last week we focused on the topic of faith. We saw that Hebrews 11 does not focus on blind faith. It doesn't mean that the people who were these heroes of the faith saw the things that they were hoping in. But it's not blind faith in the sense that, well, you just don't know, so you just like leap. You know? No, it's the opposite. They knew with a sh- with steadfast. They knew with better than having seen. They just knew that God would do what He said He would do, and they had the and they had the proof of it because God blessed them and they experienced. Maybe they didn't have the complete experience of what they were hoping for, but they had the complete experience of who they were hoping in, and for that reason, their faith was satisfied in that in the in their very lifetime. There was something yet to come. And it implies that, and actually says that in Hebrews 11. There was something yet to come. They had a citizenship in a city that had not yet been revealed. In a country that that wasn't theirs, as it were. Uh, But we are in the same boat in that regard. Because our citizenship is with something that we have not seen. Uh, We have not experienced. It's something yet future. So in that regard, it's much like them. The not seeing didn't deter these heroes of the faith. They remained confident and steadfast. This week, as we look through these three uh, things, exhortations, rebukes, and warnings, the passages in this epistle, we went through all of them, kind of tried to categorize them, come up with like a summary statement of sorts. The tone, is the tone of the epistle rebuke? Warning or exhortation? And that's a rhetorical question we'll solve by, or we'll answer by going through this. If you'll go in your homework, starting on page 131, lesson 20, and we're going to go through, we're not going to go through in order, we're actually going to break it up into categories. The first one we'll do is rebuke. This was the first one that I found, and tell me if you agree. It's chapter 5, verse 11 through 12. About him... We're speaking of Yeshua, Messiah. About him we have many words to say and hard to interpret, seeing you have become dull of hearing. For when by reason of the time you ought to be teachers, you again need to have someone to, someone teach you the rudimentary, the rudiments of the first principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. Is that a rebuke? I think it it certainly sounds like a rebuke right there. The reason I put a question mark is, if you keep reading, and you get all the way down in chapter 6, which follows immediately after this, and you keep reading, you get the idea that he's not really yet sure that they're babies or not. Because he implies... We don't have these problems with you, like we like. So it almost sounds like a rebuke, or maybe a warning. 
if not a rebuke. I put rebu- I put it in a category of rebuke, but it seems more like at times seems more like a warning. Don't go that far. Don't don't act like babies. You're not babies. It's kind of like you do with kids. You know, you're not a baby, are you? As they're sque- screaming and crying. <laughs> so it it seems to me at times that uh, when I read through the whole passage, starting in chapter five, eleven, going through six down uh, chapter six down through like verse uh, I think it's. 15 or 20 um, it seems like uh, 13 and uh, 14 actually let's go to go to chapter real quickly go to chapter uh, 5 and look at look at this is another reason why look at verse verses uh, 13 and 14 there so start with verse 12 for when by reason of the time you ought to be teachers you again need to have someone teach you the rudiments of the first principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is not experienced in the word of righteousness, for he is a baby. But solid food is for those who are, grown, who are full grown, who by reason of use of their senses exercise to discern good and evil. Do they not know good and evil? Well, if you keep reading in chapter 6, he says that they do. So again, this kind of looks like a, if it's not a rebuke, it's at least a warning. You know, don't be, you guys seem at times to act, be acting like spiritual babies, don't. I think that this whole thing turns on the dull appearing. Because dull means not sharp. And I've got a drawer full of not sharp. Yeah, yeah. And they don't cut very well. They don't do their job very well. And the hearing like Joshua likes to talk about is that whole Shema because hearing doesn't mean just They're not obeying. your eardrums. It means to act on what you have been heard you have heard and been taught. So if they're the dull of hearing that means they're not really being obedient like they should be because they know the difference. They're just not cutting. David Stern in his commentary on this verse implies that this is a rebuke that they were that they were in fact not living up to their responsibilities, but he equates it, just like you're saying, he equates it with actually being disobedient. They were not exercising, which is what, kind of what that verse implies. It says, it says, solid food is those who are grown, uh, full grown, who by reason of uses their senses exercise to discern good and evil. Not just senses, but actually the exercising and the working out of righteousness, righteous deeds. That they actually were, were falling and failing in, in good deeds. And in that, it was evidence of their lack of faith, which goes back to being dull of hearing. Yeah. David Stern's very. He was very good. I don't agree with everything he says about Hebrews, but you know, from a from a dispensational point of view, he does a very good job of of, in, in, and he's very fair in dealing with Hebrews uh, from that perspective, uh, which I don't agree with the perspective, but I appreciate his his words because he does a good job with it, and that's his take on it. And I agree with that, at least in the sense that it seems to me that if they are, maybe he got, maybe he has a sense, he's seen some evidence of some within the congregations there in Judea that that they just kind of stop trying. And and that's where he's coming from. Um, and I love that start sharp sword verse. I've forgotten now where it is. Is it in chapter four? Chapter four, yes. So mm-hmm. this is kind of fun. That's good. Yeah. Good. good. I think you're right. Yeah. Anyway, I, I put it in the rebuke column. But did you find any others that are rebukes? Um, 
What'd you get? That's <laughs> okay. What'd you get? No, no. What'd you get? Well, part of that six, one through twelve. You know why I kept it all together, didn't you? Because yeah. <laughs> you would get a rebuke the first five verses, right? Right, but it's kind of sandwiched in some. First he exhorts them, and then he kind of rebukes and warns them, and then he encourages them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why. That's actually I split five from six. Because I wanted it to be treated differently, but I kept six all together because I don't I don't know that six six it sounds like well let me just tell you this six sounds like a not only a the first half of six sounds like a harsh warning or even a rebuke but if you read down uh, below verse so I think it's verse ten starting verse ten you, you you have to come to a completely different conclusion I think because it seems like he's not saying that about them. You know, and this is the problem with this this verse. And we're gonna we're gonna get to it in a second because because I put it in a different category. So when we come back to that, let's discuss it in terms of whether it's whether it sounds like a rebuke as well. Any others? Rebuke? I'm not sure. When I was reading twelve three through seven, it seemed a little bit like a rebuke. But I'm not sure. It does. It does. But. Um, Okay. We'll, come, we'll, we'll come to that one here in a moment as well. Well, part of, the, part of my goal in, in laying it out this way was to get you to come to the conclusion that the overwhelming of these are exhortations. <laughs> I was probably successful in that anyway. <laughs> so let's go to warnings. And we'll step back to the beginning. 2, 1 through 2, 23. Now, 2, 1 through 2, 3. Yes. I, I don't know why I had a 2 in there again. Uh, for if the word spoken through... No, that's our thought. Therefore, we ought to pay great, greater attention to those things that we have that were heard, lest perhaps we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first... Having been unspoken, or having been spoken through the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard. We, was my comment. That's why we know it's not a rebuke, right? Because he says we. He's including himself. He's including himself. And it's a warning. It's saying we, but it's not like it's not saying you guys are in more danger than anybody. It's like all of us always ought to be keep thinking about this. So it's a warning to us as well. Which goes back to this thing. Is the Torah steadfast? It says the word st- spoken through angels proved steadfast. Okay. Now when I say Torah, I'm speaking of just like he did. First of all, the first five books as its foundation. But then anything that God says as well. Okay. Is God's word steadfast? Yes. How do we then think that if his word is steadfast and if, well, immediately, <laughs> go to this, immediately after, uh, after uh, um, receiving a, a Sabbath command, not, I shouldn't say immediately, but shortly after receiving a Sabbath command, um, a man's out there picking up sticks. This is the Ananias and Sapphira moment. <laughs> man's picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Moses says, what are we going to do with him? And God says, do what I said. Stone him. So they stone him. It's like, wow, that's pretty harsh. You know, that's really harsh. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, that was pretty harsh too, wasn't it? And it's like, let's make an example right in the beginning. Well, the point here is, though, did God say, that's what I said? 
Paraphrase, that's what I said, that's what you should do? Yes. So if that was true, in a negative sense, as it were, I don't think that's negative, but he keeps with his words, not a negative thing. If that was true, how much more do you think that if you deny or walk away from the faith that there won't be a, that there won't be a, a repercussions? Whoa. That's right. If that was true, the Torah steadfast. Is Yeshua steadfast? Spoken through the Lord. The word spoken through angels was steadfast. Spoken through the Lord. That's steadfast. Confirmed by those who heard. We should be steadfast. God's word is steadfast. We should be steadfast. Three, twelve through thirteen. Any comments on that one? Everybody agree that was a that was a warning. Three, twelve through thirteen. Beware. Well, there's a hint that it's a warning. <laughs> Beware, brethren, brethren, brothers, lest perhaps there be any one of you with an evil heart of unbelief in falling away from the living God. But exhort one another day by day, so long as it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a warning against unbelief, an exhortation to not be full of unbelief. Right? What's the opposite of unbelief? Belief. What we talk about what is what is the what's the root Hebrew root for faith for believing Aman to be steadfast unshaken right so all right going all the way to ten anybody get in between three and ten here for warnings okay ten twenty six through twenty nine. For if we willful, if we sin willfully after we have been, received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness of fire which will devour the adversaries. Remember how we talked about when we... Oh, excuse me, it keeps on going. A man who disregards the Torah of Moshe dies without compassion on the word of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will be judged worthy of who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant with which he has sanctified an unholy thing and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Remember how we talked about how this verse, these passages here make it, make it almost sound as if, uh, you know... Um, uh, well, well. At first, if you don't have the understanding of, of sin and sacrifices, there's no, no more knowledge. There's no more. If we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. In other words, that's it. You sin willfully. Yeshua's sacrifice won't won't cover it. Remember, that's that's not at all what this person's saying. And in fact, what he's making a reference to is this is actually the the offerings in in Leviticus. Which ones are, are for willful sin? There aren't any. There aren't any. So, so he's not. So he's, he's making a correlation here. He's saying, "Listen, if you sin willfully after you receive knowledge of the truth, there no more remains a sacrifice for sins." In other words, he's making this correlation. Listen, remember, remember, after the Torah, there's no, there's no, there's no sacrifice for willful sin. 
it doesn't mean that you can't say, well, I'm going to go sin, and you go sin, and that there's no sacrifice. That's, what it, that's, that's not what it means. What it means is you can't do just what they were accused of doing, and that is that they would go into, they'd go into the temple to worship God, participating in sin, never repenting for that sin, and yet saying, this sacrifice covers my sin today, and I won't be struck dead. That's what they were doing. And he said, those burnt offerings are not pleasing to me. Instead, what is pleasing to me? A, a repentant, a, a, a contrite heart, right? That's what the Lord desires. That's what he desires. He desires a heart that is, that is soft towards him. So, so we see this idea then that he's making this connection. But a, so if that was true, how much more is it true under, and that's where he goes to verse 28, if a man who disregards the Torah of Moshe dies without compassion on the word of two or three witnesses, how much more punishment do you think will he be judged worthy of who has trod underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant with which he has sanctified an unholy thing and insulted the spirit of grace these verses are used in the argument of in the, in the classic arguments of eternal security in ways that should not be used it's not the point being made it's not saying there is such a thing as an unforgivable sin which at times to me gets actually we're very thin with that logic at times this book is used in many ways that way we're going to look at here in a second it's really it's not fair and not only is it not fair it completely disregards the very historical context that's being made he's making the he's trying to show them look under the Torah of Moshe there was no there was no sacrifice but you couldn't just keep on sinning and then and participate in the sacrificial system that wasn't that wasn't worthwhile in the same regard you can't you can't you can't think that you can go on continue sinning under under uh, under this uh, remaining system where Yeshua's blood saves us eternally, you think you think that it's possible that you can have eternal salvation and never repent? It's really what he's saying. You have to have. It's all a part of the same package. You have to have a heart that's inclined toward God, or the sacrifices are worthless. In this regard, what sacrifice is worthless? Trodden underfoot the Son of God who has counted the blood of the covenant with which he has sanctified an unholy thing? In other words, his blood can't make that unholy person holy. Shocking. Is, is Yeshua's blood completely and utterly effective? Yes. To whom it is applied. It does not save the world. It saves those who respond to his call. That's who it saves. And that's exactly what he's saying. How, how dare you think that you can just keep on? Which kind of goes back to that same thing in chapter 5. Maybe there were, maybe there were some, some real breaking down of an understanding of sin in this congregations here in Judea. So that's a warning, yes. Chapter 12, verse 14 through 16. What help, What good would a warning like that do? Just, surely you've heard sermons along those lines. What, what good does a warning like that do? Everybody who's in Messiah, but, you know, they're not going to get more in Messiah from hearing that, are they? What about those who think they are? 
and they re-examine their lives. You know, I never really thought about it that way. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a warning to not to those who are actually in the faith. That would be a warning to those who think they are, but are not. Uh, chapter 12, verse 14. Follow after Shalom with all men, and the sanctification without which no man will see the Lord. What's that mean? Follow after peace with all men, or pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no man will see the Lord. What's sanctification? What's sanctification mean? It's certainly related to that peace with God, peace with man, peace with God. Right. And the sanctification is hidden, setting you apart. That's right. Hidden, setting you apart. Looking carefully, lest there be any man who falls short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and many be defiled by it. It's kind of like a. It's kind of like a. A disease. <laughs> Bitterness. Lest there be... And actually, that's where it stops. Actually, no, it goes to 16. Lest there be any sexually immoral person, a profane person, as Esau, who sold his birthright for one meal. And actually, I had these as two separate verses, or two, two separate passages, but they actually work together. Warning, selling, a warning against selling your inheritance for the temporary, which includes bitterness infighting among, among believers or those who claim to be believers yet which is a root of bitterness other people are defiled by it I mean it's, it's, it's the classic uh, you know we all live too close together kind of idea right <laughs> but it shouldn't be that way among believers doesn't matter how close we are together we, also, we, we, we must get along I mean, yeah. That kind of business is going on. It just tears relationships apart. I mean, it obviously gets in the way of your relationship with God. It's on a horizontal level. You can't seem to along with anyone. Yeah, yeah. So it's, a, it's a warning, first of all. It's a warning for those who are not in the faith. But it's a warning to those who are in the faith that they can defile others. They can actually hurt people who are not in the faith in, in, in their relationship to coming to faith through bitterness. Right? So it's a, it's a very serious warning there. Uh, chapter 12, verse 18 through 26. For you have not come to a mountain, we started off this, this course with this, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched or burned with fire, blackness, darkness, a storm, the sound of a shofar, and the voice of words with which those who heard it begged that not one more, one more word should be spoken to them. For they could not stand that which was commanded. Even if, if even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so fearful was the appearance that Moshe said, I am terrified and trembling, but you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Yerushalayim, and to innumerable multitudes of angels, to the general assembly and the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect for Yeshua, the mediator of a new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of heaven. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned, who, who warned on the earth, how much more will we not escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven, whose voice shook the earth? Then, but now, has promised, saying, Yet once more, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
don't refuse him. Moses speaking at si- uh, Moses at Sinai, obviously the voice of God at Sinai. How much more so should we not refuse him who speaks in uh, as Yesh- as Yeshua speaks? Says from the heavens, don't refuse him. Okay, any other warnings? That was my last warning. Any other warnings? It's my last warning. Looking at 13.4, it seems to be a little bit of both exhortation Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the bed be undefiled, but God will judge the sexually immoral adulterers. Yes, that's true. It's, it's, it's positive exhortation, which ends with a, with a warning. Yeah. Any others? All right. Let's go through the long list of exhortations now. Go back to chapter 3, verse 5. And these are, in large part, very beautiful exhortations. Moshe, indeed, was was beautiful, was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were afterward to be spoken. But Messiah is faithful is faithful as a son over his house whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and glorifying our hope firm to the end one of the things I hope that you saw as you went through these was this repeated concept of remaining faithful steadfast unshakable he starts in the very beginning of this book and he carries it all the way through he has a whole chapter devoted to it but if you don't follow it all in context you lose the picture it's all about faith and remaining steadfast. Mo- Moshe, Moses was faithful. Yeshua was faithful. You be faithful. You, you be you, you steadfast. We should be steadfast. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Let us there, fear, therefore, lest perhaps any one of you should seem to have come short of a promise of entering into his rest. Remember what we talked about, the picture and the imagery we saw in chapter 4? It says, there they were, the children of Israel, standing on the plains of Moab, and they were about to go into the land, and were they going to go in or not? Right? Were they going to go in? Well, it turns out they did, but who had to take them in? Joshua had to take them in. Don't you be like they were at Kadesh Barnea, where they are at the edge of the land and didn't go in because of unbelief. So, we should be like those who followed Joshua in. Stood at the edge, saw the same things that they did at Kadesh Barnea, and yet chose to step into the river and cross over and go into the land. That's exactly what he's talking about. Don't you should remain steadfast. You've come all this way. Don't give it up. Okay? One thing I find interesting about a lot of these exhortations, I think one reason they're often taken out of context is warnings. Is to read them as the other ways you can think about it. Well, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, if, it's, if there's anything bad can happen, yeah, sure. Well, it's just, uh, but he's coming alongside them. He's saying, come on, stick with it. Go, uh, go to chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore give diligence to enter that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. Now, it could be somewhat warning, but he starts off with an exhortation, something positive. Do this. It's a positive command. Be diligent to enter that rest. That's again, same thing. You came all this way. Why would you not walk into the river and go over? Here there it is. Here's Joshua. He's going to lead you. Right? Remember he does that play on words between Joshua's name in Hebrew? Yehoshua and Yeshua. You know, he does, he does that, that play on words there. And actually, Yeshua is a is a shortened variation of Yehoshua, Joshua. So, 
uh, four, uh, 14 through 16. Having then a great Kohen Gadol, who has passed through the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God, let us hold tightly to our confession. For we do not have a Kohen Gadol who cannot be touched or can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one who has been in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us draw let us therefore draw near with boldness to the throne of grace that we may receive help, that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in time of need. And here we have that sacrificial imagery. Remember the drawing near, the sacrificial imagery here. Draw near with boldness. And we, we saw in chapter, uh, in chapter, at the end of chapter 8 that same idea with boldness. Don't give up your boldness. Don't give up your confidence. Why? Because we have a high priest. So there's someone to remain steadfast in. You can do it. That's what he said. You can do it. You can remain steadfast. You can stick with it because you have someone who's going before you. Okay? Imagine if you don't have a high priest. You've been kicked out. Or even if you haven't been kicked out, the high priests are so antagonistic toward you and your beliefs that you have no identification with them at all other than you've got to go participate. When you go to the temple to participate, that's the bozo that's in charge, as it were. And they were. They were, they were uh, you know, Paul would never have spoken ill against them because he couldn't because he was under their authority. But they were evil men. Evil men. You know, the whole uh, uh, Ben Seth family, starting with uh, Hananiah, and actually even before that, and going all the way to, to his, like, grandson, actually it was a, like a, it, was, it wasn't a direct grandson, but when we get to uh, the same family, though, when we get to, when we get to Paul's being ju- uh, tried in, in, uh, in around, what was it, around 57, Paul's being tried, and it's the, same, it's the same family. It's like cousins of the same family, but it's the whole same corrupt system, same corrupt, shouldn't say system, same corrupt group of men that are controlling the temple and, and, and basically uh, calling the shots for all of the Levites, serving, uh, not only in the temple itself, the priests serving in the temple, but even the Levites around the temple. So it had to be you know, somewhat discouraging to think about that. Even if, you, even if you still had the opportunity to go to the temple, you know, these high priests, you know, what, what good are these people doing for me? You have a high priest, and he's faithful. He's steadfast. He's going before you. That, that is good. That's a good thing to hear, isn't it? Uh, now, let's get to chapter 6, because this is, this is a point of contention. Uh, oftentimes, the book of Hebrews is treated almost exclusively by some groups as its purpose surrounding chapter 6. The only time they ever get to the book of Hebrews is to talk about chapter 6. It depends on which side of the fence you want to put yourself. But generally, it's the Armenian side that loves this passage. Now, those who come from a more Calvinist persuasion don't like this passage. They come up with explanation as to explain it all away, but it's not the first place they'd go if they want to start talking about Bible stuff. But the Arminians would love, love it. Those who follow after teaching of uh, uh, Jacobus uh, Arminius, um, who was a uh, Dutch theologian, actually he was a student of Calvin, um, was really one of the ones who propagated the idea that you could lose your salvation. Well, first of all, <laughs> it's missing the entire point of the entire book. What's salvation? What's losing it? Imagine to a people who 
understood salvation in very temporal and eternal ways. Remember, we don't think of it as temporal. They thought of it as very temporal ways, in addition to eternal. And maybe even some of them didn't even understand the eternal part of it. Okay? Maybe they thought, maybe they thought they still had to participate in the temple sacrifices in order to truly experience uh, whatever it was they were supposed to experience in faith in Yeshua. Who knows? Maybe this is partly designed to set them straight. The point is here, however, that they are not thinking, oh no, we might lose our salvation. Because it's not a thought that would come to them. Because it's the complete opposite of everything that they had ever heard. To this very day, you will find at the very beginning of the Mishnah, in English, it's written, all Israel will be saved. That's the way, that's the way that it starts. You're going to read the Talmud. That's the way that it starts. All Israel will be saved. Lose your salvation? How? This is written to Jews. How could I possibly lose my salvation? What are you talking about? See, they wouldn't, these were words that they wouldn't hear, that they would not correlate to their experience. Now, it doesn't mean that one, it doesn't mean that salvation is not eternal. The point of it is, though, however, is that it's, it's, it's bringing up a theological argument that, is, that would be completely contrary to their frame of reference. So, if it's not talking about that, what is it talking about? And that's the question that neither the Arminians nor the Calvinists, at least anything that I've read, adequately explain. If it's not talking about eternal salvation, what's it talking about? Okay, well let's talk about it for just a second. First of all, let's start off with chapter 1. Chapter 6, remember it ends, chapter 5 ends with this discussion of them being dull of hearing. And uh, the fact that they they need they need salt that they need milk it's not solid food it's too bad you don't need solid food but then he goes on to say this in chapter six verse one therefore leaving the doctrine of first principles of Messiah so in other words okay we don't need to talk about milk you're dull of hearing I have a lot of things to say about Messiah and if I could but you're dull of hearing you need milk and not meat but by the way let's move on to the meat. That's what he does. That's exactly what he does. Therefore, leaving the doctrine of the first principles of Messiah, let us press on to perfection. Okay, here's a parallel statement. He's very Hebraic. Here's a parallel statement. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of the teaching of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. What is that about? I don't think any of those are elementary. I think that, well, I mean, they're foundational, but I don't think any of those are simple. What's he speaking of? For concerning those who were once enlightened... Actually, let me stop right there. Let's go back. The doctrine, he, de- he defines the doctrine of Messiah. By the way, this is not the doctrine of Messiah formulated by the apostles. Let's get together and let's come up with correct doctrine. Okay, these are the things we can agree on. Okay, anything else, not a matter. That's the way people generally talk about it. What's the basics? Give me the basics. Death, burial, resurrection. Right? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about not something that was formulated by the apostles as a creed. He's talking about this is what the scripture teaches about Messiah. And he gives us these images. Rejecting sin. Is that a messianic thing? Absolutely. 
What's the whole picture of the tabernacle? It is about dealing that man, sinful man cannot be in the presence with a holy God without being consumed. But God wants to have a relationship with man. And he wants man in his presence. How can the two work together? Right? That's So, it's repentance. Turning away from dead works. Turning away from sin. And then it's... And this is where you have to be, have to be very careful. <laughs> Not laying in the... Uh, of faith towards God. The teaching of baptisms. Laying on of hands. And of resurrection from the dead. Baptisms. What are baptisms? Baptism? I know, but I never heard of baptisms. Well, you see... You know, again, you know, bless Arminius and, 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 and Calvin. Maybe they didn't know there was such a thing as baptisms. Because they don't call them baptisms. <laughs> you know, their, 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 uh, rachatz is, is basically a washing. Rachatz. And it's, it's, man, it's like, do a search for rachatz in the Torah. You know, the book of Leviticus is like full of it. Okay? Or tevilah, dipping, dipping. And it's why when you went up to the temple, it's surrounded by mikvaot, ritual baths. What's the purpose of it? You see what he's doing here is he's saying, this is a fundamental messianic thing you need to understand. It's always been messianic. The temple system is a messianic thing. We're not gonna, we don't have to go over this again with you guys. You understand it's a messianic thing. Washings are a messianic thing. Laying on of hands, which is actually, which is actually, uh, smicha. This is what it says, if you do a search for smicha in the Torah, you'll find it a ton of times. It says when the, when the priest lays his hands on the head of the animal, it provides an atonement. What is that? It's that leaning. It's that placing of a of a of a moral and an ethical position on the animal, so that as the animal is sacrificed, it's as if you were, right? That's what he's talking about. He said these are messianic things. Remember the whole temple thing. We don't need to go over this all again, guys. You understand that's a messianic thing, right? That's what he's talking about. It's tabernacle language, resurrection of the dead. But it sounds like actually a doctrinal statement for the Pharisees. To be honest with you, that's exactly what it sounds like. Here's, here's what we as Pharisees believe. By the way, they didn't do that. <laughs> here's what we as Pharisees believe. First of all, we believe that, we believe that, that, that the, the, the Torah is immutable. That God said it. That's good enough. And we're not going to discuss it anymore. We believe also that the prophets... And the writings are in complete agreement and, and, and satisfy the, the, uh, uh, the Torah, that explain the Torah. We believe in a coming Messiah. We believe in a resurrection of the dead. We believe that there's a judgment, that God will judge the living and the dead, the righteous to everlasting uh, joy, and the, uh, the wicked to everlasting punishment. There. Well, the everlasting punishment was a questionable one later on. But there were parts of the Pharisees would agree with that. Okay, so there it is. That's, that's Pharisaic theology. And that's exactly what he's talking about right here. This is foundational. That's what he's saying. This is foundational stuff. We don't have to go over this again. You guys understand this. This is, what, this is part of the culture you grew up in. You're in Judea of all places. You know? It's a block full of Pharisees. <laughs> you guys know this stuff. But there's something else. You knew all that, but now you know who it was speaking of. 
you knew all that in a general sense. Now you know specifically who it was speaking of. Let's continue reading now where he leaves off. For concerning those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fell away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify the Son of God for themselves again and put him to open shame. For the land which has drunk the, drunk the rain that comes often on it and brings forth a crop suitable for them for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles it is rejected and near being cursed whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are persuaded of better things for you and things that accompany salvation even though we speak like this. In other words, this is not for you you're not like this what's it speaking of he says it's impossible what's impossible it's impossible once you've been saved to get unsaved yes but that's not what he's saying he's saying once you know what all of that stuff was about Messiah in the tabernacle system in in turning away from sin in in uh, washings uh, in immersions, in the sacrificial system, the laying on of hands, the, the sacrificial animal. Once you know who it was about, how can you not know anymore? How can you say, I, d- I, don't, I don't know if that's about Yeshua or not? <laughs> you know what it means now. Now that you know what it means, you've gone past the threshold. It's impossible you say, well, I don't know what it means anymore. I'll just take the temple, I don't need Yeshua. No, if you take the temple and not Yeshua, you don't even get the temple. You know, before you knew Yeshua, you could have the temple and kind of wonder what it all meant. But now that you know what it all meant and you reject Yeshua, you reject the temple itself. You can't go back to just the temple is what he's saying. You can't go back to the temple. It's impossible for you to say, okay, I'm leaving Yeshua, I'm going back to the temple. What you'll be doing is, remember those two circles? Here's the, here's the faith or, or those who are in the new covenant and center. Here's those who are in the old covenant on the outside. If you say, I'm leaving the new covenant to go back to the old covenant, you're stepping out of both. That's impossible. You can't. You can't step out. Because once you know, you can't unknow it. It's kind of like, and I hate to say this, it's kind of like it's like the knowledge is the tree of good and evil in a negative sense, right? Once you know it, you can't unknow it. Here's what you know. You know it's speaking of Messiah. All these things that we've been, that you were trained in, that you were participated in before you came to faith. You knew that all of this was, was pointing to someone and something. Now you know his name. How dare you think that you could unknow his name? Because the moment you say, well, I don't know if it's really speaking of Yeshua, you would actually be denying the very temple system itself because that's what it points to. Which is exactly his point as he goes on through this. Right? It's a shadow. It's a shadow. The very substance is Messiah. And if you say, no, no, that's not, that's not the shape of his hand, then you don't even know what the shadow is. It's impossible. Which is the key word that Calvinists rightfully pick up. It's impossible. But it's not talking about salvation. It's saying you can't step out of Christianity and go back to Judaism. Because Christianity, he wouldn't be using that word, because Christianity is Judaism. And if you want to step out of one, you're stepping out of all of it. Which is impossible. That's what he says. It's impossible. (laughs) Don't worry. And actually, he's saying don't worry. Look what he says. 
sanctified by love and we're persuaded of better things for you and things that accompany salvation even though we speak like this for God is not unrighteous so as to forget your work and the labor of love which you showed toward his name listen this is great imagine the temple system and them participating in it as I read this in that you serve the holy ones and do serve them we desire that each one of you may show the same diligence in the fullness of hope even to the end that you won't, won't be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises just stick with it stay steadfast okay? they throw you out let them throw you out for a good reason that make sense? questions about that before we move on? I kind of say that because otherwise chapter 6 becomes a distraction. Understand, if you haven't gone through this whole Hebrews thing, chapter 6 is a distraction. If you haven't been immersed in the things that we've immersed ourselves in, in the cultural aspects, the sacrificial system, then you miss the whole point. It becomes something, it becomes a debate of whether you can lose your salvation. And you kind of have to scratch your head, you know. It just doesn't equate. Uh, verses 9 through 12, of course, you aren't like that. It's impossible. Therefore, remain steadfast. Yes, they have hope in them. Not hope like maybe yes, maybe no, but yeah, you will be steadfast. Exhortations continue here. The next one I had was 8, 1 through 2. Now, in the things which we are saying, the main point is this. Oh, here we go. <laughs> we have such a Kohen Gadol, who sat down on the right hand of the, heaven, of, of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a servant of the sanctuary, and, the tr- and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched not men. Be steadfast. He's our high priest. Draw near. He sat down. It's a pretty good picture, isn't it? When does the high priest sit down during Yom Kippur? He doesn't. Not until the day's over. The work has to be completed. All of it completed before he can sit down. Uh, 10, 24 through 25. Let us now consider how to provoke one another to love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Imagine you're being kicked out of the temple system. Remember, you have a couple options. You can, you know, low under the radar. You know, who's that, Yeshua? I have no idea what you're talking about. Or you can uh, make a brash... You know, exit and get kicked out. Or, maybe you could just slink away to Galilee and maybe no one will be the wiser. You know, go down to Beersheba. You don't have to, you know, no one will know where I came from or what I did. This is what he's saying. It's like, listen, this is a community thing. You need to stick with your community. Because you need that strength from the community. You need the strength from one another. Remaining steadfast is your individual. It's your individual responsibility. However, God has given you a gift. And it is one another. And if you want to make it easier for yourself, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. This is not a command that one must attend church on every time the door is open. This is an exhortation to understand that we are part of a community. In our community, we learn from one another and how to be steadfast. 10, 32 through 36. 
But remember the former days in which after you were enlightened, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly being exposed to both reproaches and oppressions, and partly becoming partakers with those who were treating so. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, that and an enduring one in the heavens. Therefore, don't throw away your boldness, which has a great reward. For you need endurance so that, having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Again, receiving the promise. He's making this correlation he does in chapter 11 uh, between sticking with it and getting what it was you're hoping for. And it's not that, well, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm quitting because I haven't seen the results of that. <laughs> That's the antithesis of faith. Faith says, no, that's what I'm going to do. I know it's true, and it doesn't matter if it doesn't seem to be working out or not. 11, 37 through... Have I skipped any? 11, 37 through 12, 3. They were stoned. They were sawn apart. They were tempted. They were slain with a sword. They went around in sheepskin and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, and the holes of the earth. These all, having a testimony given to them through their faith, didn't receive the promise. God having provided some better thing concerning us, so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. In other words, if you think you're better than they are, <laughs> you should be able to see... Uh, what it is therefore let us also seeing we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses these heroes of the faith lay aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with patience that it patience where there is, is endurance the race that is set before us looking to Yeshua the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God remaining steadfast we have these examples the examples of these men and women of faith that are named in chapter 11 and of course our master who endured the ultimate and how did he endure it was it hard yes was it impossible in human sense yes but how did he endure it because he saw beyond it chapter 12 verses 3 through 7 for considering for consider him speaking of Yeshua who has endured such contradiction of sinners against himself that if you don't grow weary fainting in your souls you have not yet resisted to blood striving against sin and you have and you have forgotten the exhortation which reasons with you as with children my son don't take lightly the chastening of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him for whom the Lord loves he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you endure God deals with you as with children for what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline. Exercise. Sticking with it. Endurance. That steadfastness. God helps us in our steadfastness. Taking away those things that are hard does not necessarily make it easy for us. He's training us. He's training us to remain faithful. And that's actually verses 11 through 13 as well. 
Therefore, lift up the hands that hang down, the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that it is, so that which which is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Thirteen one through three. Skip any 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 of them there. Let brotherly love continue. This is basically, chapter 13 is basically the chapter everybody kind of puts into category exhortations. Very Pauline sounding. Okay? A whole list of good stuff to stick with, right? But notice how it continues to... uh, Well, first of all, let me start off by saying he says, "Let let brotherly love continue. All of these exhortations truly sound like exhortations. You're doing it, keep on doing it, right? Let brotherly love continue. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For in doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in bonds, as bound with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you also are uh, you are also in the body. And this is steadfast and evidence of love for each other. Flesh it out. Don't just say you love your brother. Do something about it. Verse four. Steadfast and remaining sexually pure. This is where Jeremiah also said this sounds like a warning, and it certainly has a level of warning at the end. Let marriage be be held in honor among all, and let the bed be undefiled, but God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. Okay, kind of goes along with that same same idea of living, not just saying, but living what you say you believe. Uh, verses five through six. Be free from the love of money. Content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will in no way leave you, neither will I in any way forsake you. So that with good courage we we say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Rejecting covetousness. Steadfast. 7 through 8 and uh, 18 through 19 are kind of the same idea. Remember your leaders... Men who spoke to you the word of God and considered the results of their conduct imitate their faith. Yeshua the Messiah is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then skipping down to verses 18 and 19, he says, Pray for us, for we have persuaded that you and we have a good conscience, desiring to live honorably in all things. I I strongly urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. It's the same idea of praying for your leaders and submitting to your leaders as well. And verses 9 through 13. Don't be carried away by various and strange teachings. For it is good that the heart is established by grace, not by food, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the holy tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the Kohen Gadol as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Yeshua also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. Let us therefore go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Steadfast and pure teaching and be willing to suffer for it. Some people are going to treat you like a leper. If you're steadfast in good teaching, if you say, nah, you know, I like the way that sounds, I have to admit, I, I, I may even prefer the way that sounds, but I can't deny what the Word of God says. Well, you do and you're a heretic. Okay, well, I guess I'll have to be a heretic then. Steadfast in joyful submission. 
Now let me step back one, one real quick. Steadfast and pure teaching, be willing to suffer for it. Imagine these people in the temple system being either thrown out already or shortly to be thrown out. And the tendency is going to be, especially if they leave the land of Israel, especially if they are in, in the diaspora, the tendency is going to be, some of the Gentiles will be saying, listen, you know, if you'll just not run up against the Romans and other people so Jew-like, it'll be better. This is what happened. This is exactly what happened. But basically, believers were given the choice. You can either be Jewish or something else. You can either be like those Jews or something else. And they said, you know, it's just too difficult to be like those Jews. You know, how about, how about we not identify with them at all? You know, it'll be easier. No one will pick on us. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, within a mere 200 years, they're running the whole show. Christianity is the religion of the empire. Why? Because they rejected the very culture of their master. They wanted nothing to do with it. And so the rest of the world goes, good, finally. You know, at least you're not like those Jewish people. It really is very sad that, that Christians, those who, those who named the name of Yeshua as their master, wanted to disassociate themselves with their master's culture and their master's brothers and sisters. More so to the point where it became purely a cultural thing in their mind, even though the very words of God say. To this day, I hear people say, talking about the Feast of Leviticus 23, they call them the Feast of the Jews or the Feast of Israel, but God doesn't call them that. He calls them the Feast of the Lord. It's not a Jewish thing, but that's exactly what was happening then. They're saying, no, that's the Jewish stuff. If you avoid that, it'll be okay. People actually save money by not being associated with their Jewish brothers, believers. After the destruction of the temple, they actually were given a choice. Pay the tax, the Jewish tax, or just say you're not Jewish. Right? Well, they weren't Jewish. They were Gentile. No, I'm not associated with those people. They didn't have to pay tax. It was expensive. I mean, in, 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 you know, in adjusted amounts of money, it was thousands of dollars per head of your family if you were Jewish that you paid to the, to the, to the emperor. Why? Because you're Jewish. That's it. Well, if you're a believer, you know, you might be tempted to go, no, no, I'm not associated with those people. See, the, the emperor didn't say Jewish was an ethnic thing. He said it was a religious thing. And the Jews and Christians were one big group in his mind. And that's where the Christians said, I want nothing to do with that. And they separated themselves. It was monetary. It was, it was downright anti-Semitic at times. Eventually it became very easy to say, I had nothing to do with them. But that's not the way it started out. And in my mind, when it says steadfast and pure teaching, that's exactly what it's talking about. In my mind, it's saying, listen, you may have a, you may have a sensitivity, you may have an inclination to bolt on these things that make you stick out like a sore thumb. The whole rest of the Roman Empire is doing whatever except these silly Jews on these festival days. And they're the only ones doing it. And the Christians are doing it with them. Because they're not separate people, they're one people. You know, it, it had to be had to be something that they needed to hear. Now these are these are Jewish people hearing this. Now there are Jews today who believe in Yeshua that want nothing to do with their brethren in this 
identification. No, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian. You know, there's nothing wrong with saying you're a Christian, but are you still Jewish? <laughs> right? And some of them, then it's only an ethnic thing. It's not just an ethnic thing. That's the point. It's not just an ethnic thing. It is a, it's an identification for us. Even those of us who are Jewish, it is an identification with our master who is. His brothers are our brothers. We've been grafted in. His family is our family. We have no choice. And we shouldn't want a choice. And the strange teaching is those things that take us away from those concepts. That say, that divide God's word up into categories of this is for Jewish people, this is for Gentiles. Or this is for a time that was Jewish and this is for a time that's Christian. This is the Jewish Sabbath, this is the Christian Sabbath. You know, this is the Jewish resurrection uh, uh, celebration, this is the Christian resurrection celebration. Those things, those things are not remaining steadfast in pure teaching. Being willing to suffer outside the camp. That's what we need to say. I'm willing to suffer outside the camp. Even if my brothers and sisters say I'm a heretic, I'm willing to suffer outside the camp. I'm going to identify with my master. My little speech. Chapter 22. Or chapter 13, verse 22. But I exhort you, brothers, endure the word of exhortation, for I have written you in a few words. <laughs> there he is. He said it. It's, that's the whole book. Is one big book of ex- one big exhortation. That's what it was. Tell <laughs> you how that worked out. Huh? Isn't that great? The writer, it, 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 is, it is so much like Paul. I mean, I don't know that it is, but you know, I, I don't. I, I feel like it's not, but it is so much like Paul's, kind of like almost apologizing, but at the same time saying, "I really didn't really lay it too heavy on you, did I?" <laughs> Any others? Did you have some different? What was the overwhelming balance, though? It was exhortation in it. It's encouragement. They needed words of encouragement. That verse reminds us of the practical nature of this book. While so many think this book is a warning against Judaism, the temple system, or apostasy in general, it's rather an exhortation to remain steadfast and unwavering. Stay where you are. Let them kick you out for good reasons, but stay where you are. Stay there. The writer gives complex arguments on the reasons for steadfastness. He links the physical and the spiritual, doesn't he? All the way through it. He doesn't let us play the game of trying to elevate things to a point of being ethereal, where we're allowed to play the spiritual game at the expense of living a real physical life of righteousness and obedience. He won't let us. He keeps bringing us back. Chapter 13 is a perfect example. He's saying, it's not just the thing that you think, it's a thing that you must actually act out. Act out love for your brothers. And it's not a book of milk at all. It's a book of meat. And those who are adults who exercise and practice what they know. Children engage in fantasy or theory. I know it doesn't seem like it at times. I mean, you sit down and just... I know, I know I'm the one that loves to discuss theology. But really, that's a children's activity. It's a, it's, it's a theory. It's a, it's a fantasy. One can discuss it and not live it. It's for adults to live it. It takes adults to live it. And that's why chapter at the end of chapter 5, I think that he is encouraging them just to grow up. Be adults. Live what you... Say that you believe. Live it. Final comments? I think that's it.
Remain steadfast in Messiah. He is what it's all about. And how much more? Is that it? You're welcome. It was fun, wasn't it? Yeah. I see on my came back all the things that we should incorporate into the way we live how easy that fractured you know God's people the minute something started dropping out we've always talked how living out the Torah is a community thing it's a community the minute that community was being fractured that's true that's true and it, it's as now we try to live that we long for a community. We do, we do, and and communities community is hard to come by. Those who have it know how precious it is, and it seems like those who have it don't appreciate it. You know, it's like the writer here is saying, let's not lose this. I mean, don't like you say, don't let them kick us out for the wrong reason. You know, I mean, you may be kicked out, but make sure it's for the right reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, you are good to us, and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Messiah's work on our behalf. Not just the work of salvation, Father, that uh, curses for us an enduring and eternal inheritance. But, Father, also for the ongoing work where he intercedes for us on our behalf. We thank you that he has gone before us, and that through him we are invited into your very presence. We thank you that he has done all that is necessary for life and godliness. And Father, that we have been grafted in and that we find a home and a family in you. And we thank you that you have given us instruction and left us with the Holy Spirit as a teacher and guides us in righteousness. Pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natananu Torah temet Rechai olam natabitokhenu Baruch atah Adonai Noten ha Torah Amen Don't come back next week